Okay. So I got some requests the other day. I made a comment on Twitter about some techniques that can be used to negotiate more effectively with a toxic person slash narcissist. And uh, some people reached out and asked if I could explain a bit more, which I'm very happy to do. And it's complicated to do on Twitter with 32 characters. So here's a video. Let's see how short or long it is. Uh, video up might. I'll see. I might upload this to my um, to my podcast if I think it's going to be helpful. So I'm sort of ad libbing, um, and we'll see how how helpful I can make this. When I talk about negotiating with such a person, it really is about maximizing the probability of getting an outcome that works for us, and minimizing the probability that they they disrupt uh, any process. What's really complicated is when we negotiate with a normal person, just as in any kind of normal relationship, there's some presuppositions that we have about reciprocity, decency, um, playing fair, playing according to the rules. And these are things typically that toxic people do not respect, which is why it's so difficult to, to interact with them. And it seems like even the most the most mundane thing becomes, uh, the most mundane things become uh, a hassle and a challenge. So I believe it is helpful to understand partly why that is, and then understand some techniques that can that can help us improve the probability, the likelihood of an outcome that is better for us than it would be otherwise. Uh, everything I'm saying is my best understanding of of this i look well i don't claim to have any insight into truth i claim to have found arguments that i find persuasive that have helped me that i share if it works for you then it's great and if it doesn't work for you then it doesn't work for you and hopefully it informs you and you can make up your mind about why it works why it doesn't work uh, i spent a fair amount of time observing thinking trying to understand and now I'm very, very happy to share. Uh, I might point out that I have a full workshop that I haven't uploaded yet um, that I gave on this topic. So I have a, a shorter masterclass that I probably will upload that's got a few of the, a few of the ideas, and I've got a full three-hour workshop uh, about this that I haven't uploaded yet. I want to, to edit it. Uh, sorry, three hours? Six hours. Six-hour workshop uh, that goes more in-depth. But here, here are a few pointers that should be helpful. Uh, so, first of all, when, actually, let me pause, let me think about how I start. Okay. When I talk about toxic people, I prefer talking about toxic people than narcissists. Uh, I prefer doing that because I find that debating labels is not something that is helpful in our process. And we run the risk of asking ourselves, is this person a narcissist, yes or no? Whereas the real question should be, does the person's behaviors work for me or not? And if they do, then they do. And if they don't, they don't, regardless of the label. So it's really about the behaviors. Uh, if someone turns out to be a narcissist but displays none of the symptoms, I don't care. It's like if someone is deep down inside a racist but behaves in a very loving and caring way with everyone that, the, the, that they deep down inside hate, I really don't care. If someone 
has unpleasant behaviors, then I do care because that is what really affects other people, the, the thoughts deep down inside. Provided they keep, uh, they keep it under control, provided they, they, they don't harm anyone, it doesn't matter. In this case, we're talking about people whose behaviors harm other people. There are enough red flags of this. I've got a few articles on my website about uh, various red flags that I've observed that help us identify these people. And sorry, you're likely to see me pause the video every now and then because I'm on a chair that keeps sinking as I'm talking. So it's going to create a very disturbing effect if I don't don't readjust it. Uh, okay, back to back to the toxic people. How do we negotiate with them? Well, the first thing that we really need to do is stop delegating responsibility to them. Stop hoping they will behave decently. I see time and time again people thinking, why don't you just behave like a decent human being? And I, I often ask the question, you know, what in this person's past behavior leads you to believe that they have any probability or possibility of behaving in a decent fashion in the future? Like, wh what have they done to lead you to believe that there is a likelihood that they will not abuse you and take advantage of you? You know, is there anything in the behavior? Or is it simply that you hold this belief that people should be acting a certain way and should not be acting another way? If you hold this belief, where does this belief come from? And is the belief an accurate representation of reality? You know, you can believe that people should be nice. That's irrelevant. Should is irrelevant. Do you see people who are nice? Some, yes, of course, and some not. So what can that lead you to believe? That your belief might be erroneous? Maybe that's a good realization to have. Maybe it's a realization that some people cannot be trusted. I remember multiple toxic people I, I knew, some I considered at one point were friends, some people I dated. Uh, for instance, a number of them were, were histrionic. They were incapable of behaving themselves in a decent fashion amongst people of the opposite sex. And they would, you know, claim to be charming, to be womanizers, to simply be popular with men. Uh, but in reality, the, the behavior was simply that they, they, they used sexual power in order to get attention, look for attention, create jealousy. And that's just, uh, that's just a specific behavior that they have. So I could assume, you know, it's an assumption I had is, if two people are dating, you don't hit on one of your best friend's girlfriends. You, you just don't do it. Or one of your best friend's boyfriends, whichever way around it might be, you don't do it. You don't create ambiguous situations because you there's certain levels of decency that you know any normal human being ought to have. Now, I could believe that as much as I wanted. It changed nothing to what I observed. Some people were histrionic. Uh, some people... Some, with some women, every interaction they had with a man was ambiguous. Everyone. Uh, so whatever my belief was, it changed nothing about reality. So in this case, don't believe that people should be acting a certain way if they don't. And if you do believe it, ask yourself, what leads you to believe this? Now, one of the underlying issues I see time and time again uh, that we get with, with toxic people is a sense of imbalance in the dynamics of the relationship. So transactional analysis 
helps explain part of this. I'll summarize it for you in a few minutes. You might know of it already, then just skip through a few minutes. So transaction analysis was created by a gentleman called Dr. Eric Byrne in the 1960s, 50s or 60s. And he basically describes different ways of behaving. He talks about different ego states. So there are three main ego states. And the idea is we can be playing out one, acting one or another at any point in time when we fluctuate between the different ego states. So one ego state, the main one, the ideal one, is the one that we have now, which is the one of adult. So I'm an adult, I'm rational, I have emotions, I understand my emotions, and I talk to you like an adult. You are rational, you also have emotions, we can communicate ideas, we can agree, we can disagree. Uh, we can respect each other, we're equals, we've got different backgrounds, different levels of, of, of knowledge, of intelligence, of whatever, we're equals. We just have different skill sets that we bring to the table, and I treat you with respect as an equal. We're different, and we're equals. Adult is number one. Below, you have uh, the child. You've got four types of children. All that children want is to be, is to feel safe and be loved. Why feel safe and be loved? Because when you're a child, you are not capable of surviving alone in society. For the bulk of human history, hundreds of thousands of years, we lived in caves, we lived in small tribes, we had no technology, we were at, we were at risk of being attacked by animals, other tribes, being sick, and so on and so forth. Our only hope for survival was sticking together as a tribe and helping each other out, which is one reason why we've got various various morals that are good for the tribe, uh, good for living together in, in society, and making sure that we can continue to live, we can survive, our DNA can reproduce. That's one of, from my point of view, one of the two functions of being alive reproducing the DNA, and the other one is growing our soul. Uh, and the reason why we reproduce the DNA is so more souls can come down and can live this experience, can grow their soul. Whether or not you believe it, it's a very helpful prism through which to view life, because any, any, any difficulty is simply an opportunity to grow our soul. So even toxic people are just a great opportunity to identify our weak spots and grow fast. It's horribly unpleasant, horribly painful, that is really effective, like really, really effective. So anyway, uh, back to back to living in tribes. Children living in tribes, if they got kicked out of the tribe, they were dead. Adults living in tribes, if they were kicked out of the tribe, they were dead. As an adult, there are more expectations of contributing to the tribe in a productive way, whether it's out hunting, whether it's uh, cooking, whether it's maintaining uh, the cave, making sure everyone is okay, looking after the children. We all have a role to play, regardless of our skill set. Everyone is needed. For the children, provided they are loved, they are safe. And all the children want is to feel safe and loved. So there are four types of children. The first type of child is the natural child. That's a child that runs around, that has fun, that plays, that asks questions, that wants to know why things are the way they are, that is really curious, that, um, yeah, that is fun, that is natural. The second type of child is the 
um, adapted child or adaptive child, I think adapted child, the child that was having fun, that was a natural child, and someone said, stop. Stop asking so many questions. Stop making so much noise. Stop doing this. Go and clean your room. Do your homework. If you don't do what I tell you to do, you won't be safe and loved. So you have to adapt your behavior in order to get back to a place where you're feeling safe and loved and not threatened. And uh, yeah, that's the adapted child. The third type is the rebel. It's like the teenager, the one who you or you go, go and clean your room. And the teenager says, you know, I should clean my room. Have you seen your room? This is ridiculous. Anyway, I don't respect you. Everything is a joke, so on and so forth. The one that's rejecting authority. That might also be the one, incidentally, this is a, a thought I had that's come to me, that was, it might be the one also who says, I'd like to go and play with my friends. And the parent says, well, you have to clean your room first. The child, for whatever reason, can't say to the parent, well, my friends are going home in half an hour, so if it's not now, it's never. Uh, and then the kid stays in, in, in the room, cleans it or doesn't clean it, doesn't go out. The parent goes, well, you know, you finished cleaning your room, you can go out now. And the child goes, well, you punished me, so I'm going to punish myself even more. Maybe if I really hurt myself, then you will come looking for me and you will ask for forgiveness and I will punish you by showing you just how much you made me suffer. That's my intuition. There's a part of another part of the rebel that's like that. Uh, fourth child is the little professor. Little professor is the one who wants to show how smart they are, how much they know, how good they were with doing uh, the homework, with showing how how eloquent they are, with thinking, if my parents don't love me, and if I don't feel safe, maybe the problem is me. Maybe I should have better grades. Maybe I should work harder. Maybe my room wasn't clean enough. And that's why my parents were fighting. It's that type of idea. Uh, so the one who wants to show how smart they are, how hard, how well they worked, the one that's looking for approval um, from, from the parents. Now, there are two types of parents. One is the nurturing parent, the one that says, you know, oh, that's great. Wonderful. We're proud of you. You're amazing. You're so talented. You're beautiful. You're smart. You're handsome. You're all of these things. Uh, that's the nurturing parent. And the other one is the critical parent. And the critical parent is the one that says, stop. Stop making so much noise. Stop asking questions. You're annoying. Look at you. You're ridiculous. You're embarrassing. And critical parents can be literally parents, can also be teachers. It can be uh, anyone in a position of authority, policemen, policewomen, judges, politicians, partners. And toxic people are really good at playing the role of parent and going from nurturing to critical, back and forth. Uh, why they do it, who knows, who cares? Mental illness, maybe. Are they aware of it? Probably not. And if they were, what would it change? It's like if, if the crocodile is aware that it's going to hurt when he bites your hand off, does it change anything? Not really. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure they're really aware of this. Um, so yeah, with toxic people, they tend to play parent and we tend to let them because we assume that all it takes is to, to, to listen to each other, be reasonable, I show some reciprocity. If they're hurt, we try to play nurturing parent or we try to, you know, help them feel better when they're hurt. 
and they can use that to transfer their pain to us um, using emotional contagion. Or if we're not receptive to to what they want, to accuse us of being uh, indifferent, insincere, uh, to not caring about them. And then when we do something, they sort of they, they they whack from one to the other. They tend to go from nurturing uh, to a child to a critical parent to criticizing, and they do it in very bizarre ways. I mean, it, it, may, it may, makes not much sense. Like you'll be you'll be cooking a meal at first, they love it, and then after a while, they criticize that your cooking was always terrible. Go like it doesn't it doesn't add up. But they don't care so much about adding about being coherent as they do about winning. So this is this is a rather important point with toxic people is they view every interaction as being a win-lose interaction. So the way that goes is in a normal interaction, it's win-win. So for example, if you watch this video and you think that I made a mistake, that disagree with something, you might you might contact me and tell me that you disagree with something. So in principle, here we have an exchange between adults. Either I agree with you and I say, you know, fair point. I learned something. Thank you. Kudos to you. That's great. I appreciate it. Or I disagree with you. And then I'll I'll take the time to reply and I'll say, you know, I disagree. Here's why I disagree. These are my arguments. They make sense to me. If they make sense to you, great. And if they don't make sense to you, then, you know, if you explain to me why, then I'll, I'll learn something. Then we, we have an exchange and we want the best ideas to win. The way toxic people seem to view things is that it's always a win-lose. Therefore, if the way it works is you interact with a toxic person, they think if you win, it means I've lost. I'm not going to be a loser. I do not accept being a loser. Therefore, I will make you lose. And if you lose, that means I've won. That's why it's so difficult to come to any kind of reciprocity or healthy relationship with them. It's not possible. It's, it's sabotaged from the beginning uh, because they always want you to lose. For them, it's unthinkable not to lose. Uh, it's unthinkable to lose themselves. Therefore, you're going to be losing. And it's really difficult to play a game when the other person is trying very hard to destroy the game. There's no way out. That's uh, They've sabotaged it from the get-go. So when it comes to relationships with them, when it comes to negotiation, their goal is to make you lose. It's very easy to make the other person lose when you're playing the critical parent. Uh, this leads me back actually to an idea that someone shared with me that comes from Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's saying that in any interaction, there, there are three people. There's you, there's me, and there is the judge. In, in any interaction, who is the judge? Is it you or is it me? Now, I don't claim to be a judge. I claim to be able to think for myself, but I don't know when I'm right. I don't know what is true. I make my best guesses. I'm making educated guesses. I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. But I don't know of, you know, beforehand when I'm right or wrong. I have to observe the feedback that the system gives me, the feedback I get from the world around me. And I observe it, and then I put two and two together, and I, I come up with the best, the most plausible explanation. So I'm not judge. And I don't believe that you're a judge either you're doing the same as me. You're doing your best to find the most plausible explanation. You're doing your best to make sense of, of, of things and act in the best possible way. 
according to, to a grand scheme of things. If you're toxic, then you're doing your best to make the world burn and to try to create havoc and destruction. And if you're any of the toxic people that I met and you're watching this, then yeah, that's, uh, I, I know it well. I'd actually have a lot of gratitude because without you, I wouldn't be so happy and successful now. So it didn't work. Bad luck. Just doesn't, doesn't work. Um, so yeah, who is the judge? Well, the judge, according to this approach, is the universe. It's God. It's karma. Call it whatever you like. The best we can do is to speak our truth and then see where the chips fall. And our truth is our best approximation. It's the best, uh, the best way of doing it. Now, toxic people love to be judged. They pretend they're judged. They pretend they're qualified to analyze other people, to judge other people, to know what music is good, is bad, which restaurants are good, are bad. They tend to be very binary of what is good and bad in the absolute. And they've got not much sense of, it's just irrelevant. What, who, which is the best band in the world? Well, what do you even mean by best? What do you mean? The one liked by the most people? But if, if, if there's a band that nobody likes but you, and you love it, who cares? Who cares? You love it. All that really matters, from my point of view, all that matters is your enjoyment. It's not trying to debate what is objectively true, but because they are so fake, because they have a fake persona, which is basically a mask that they wear, and they pretend to be someone in public, and they think if they can convince enough people to be that they are this person, it means that they are this person which is much easier than developing an actual personality, um, which I'm pretty sure they don't have. I think they actually do not have a fully formed personality because it seems to change every time they speak to someone else. They might have a small number of personal so-called personalities, but all of them are fake. And when you, you see them behave with different people, it doesn't add up. Uh, it's, it's, it's different people. And when you ask them about it, they come up with very, very weird explanations about this. Okay, so they like to be judged. They are not judged. So how do we deal with these people? First of all, we need to change our mindset. Stop considering them as judge. Stop considering anyone else as a judge. There's simply various rules. We try to observe them, navigate them, do our best. Even in, uh, let's say, a talent show where there is a panel of judges, they're just the judges on the, ta on the, on the panel. They don't have any absolute truth. They're not in a position to know better than anyone. They might represent, they might represent the majority opinion. So what? It's just the majority opinion. It's not an absolute truth. It's so to totally different. So it's really important. Step away from this mindset. Then one thing that happens often with toxic people is we talk to them like they know and we argue with them as though they're judges. It's sort of the thing of, if I can convince you that what I'm doing is reasonable, then I will feel validated. I will feel heard. If we notice anything inside ourselves that we're trying to be validated, this is a red flag of an issue that we have. We do not need external validation. You do not need external validation. Yes, it feels nice when we feel like we're going crazy, when we're being gaslit, to finally understand what the hell is going on. Now, in principle, you've got your feet on some relatively solid ground of understanding 
fact toxic people exist, understanding gaslighting, understanding behaviors that are incredibly unhelpful uh, that the toxic people use, and having tools to work it out. And whatever I'm saying, you have the tools to figure out, does this resonate with me or not? If it doesn't, why? And if it does, why? And just think about it. You got the tools. Like, you know, that's that's all you need. So no more viewing people as judges. No more arguing with them. And I, I see that so often. People thinking, um, oops, sorry, just got a message that bust my ears. Uh, so people thinking, if I am capable of convincing them, then, then what? Seriously, then what? If you can convince them that two plus two equals four and isn't equal to five, so what? You know what you know is true. You don't have to argue with them. They might be capable, and I think of one, one Maldivian chap in particular, who was trying to convince me that he'd had dinner with my mother and myself, and I knew he hadn't, and he swore that he had. And I even asked her, just saying, you know, I know we didn't, but this is weird. She goes, no, I never met him. Never met him. And he was, he was swearing that was the case. I don't know if it's because he's mentally ill, which he, he clearly is, or if it might be uh, because he was testing me to see how much he could gaslight me. That's also, also an option. Uh, so I don't have the answer to that. But no need to negotiate with these people. So what often happens is they will, so you will ask for something. You'll say, for example, could we find a compromise that works for both of us regarding, I don't know, payments of whatever it might be, or you owe me money, can you give it back to me? And they're going to find ways to deflect this. So this is where we bring in the, the, the Chris Voss techniques, is instead of us making suggestions, we spin it around the other way. And we say something along the lines of, uh, actually, before we get into this, we have to figure out what power of nuisance do we have? How much nuisance can we create in their life? So we need to know about this. If we're just asking for someone to do something they've got no interest in doing, and there's no consequence if they don't do it, it might be possible. It's still a struggle. It could be the reputation, could be money, whatever it might be. So, and this is not, it's not blackmail in the sense that we're not threatening to get to, well, sort of, we're not, I don't know, it's a fine line here. We're not threatening to do someone to do something. We're just asking the question. We're looking for a solution. So it's not like, well, we're not, the goal is not to extort money from someone who hasn't done anything because that's perfectly illegal. It's if somebody has lent you money and they're not giving it back, there are a few things that can be done. So one thing is to say, um, this thing that can be a nuisance, I know you don't want it to happen and I don't want it to happen either. It could be going to the police. Why not? I've done that. It could be going to the police. It could be talking with, uh, with people. Um, it could be a variety of things. And then it's going, you know, I, you don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So what do you suggest? And you ask them, what do you suggest? And then see what they come back with. And if they go, I don't suggest anything, then you can ask, like, it seems like you've given up on the possibility that we find a solution that works for you and works for me. They might say yes. Okay, then you know you've given, they've given up on the possibility. So if they've given up on the possibility of finding a solution that works for both of you, 
then you can go, well, okay, um, it seems that the only option I have then is to go to the police. And then you see what they, what they say. If they go, no, you can't do that to me. So what do you suggest? When they come back with a suggestion you don't like, you don't have to justify why you don't like it. That's one of the, the regular mistakes is going, well, I wish I could, but I can't. In this case, it's much easier just to say something like, that doesn't seem reasonable to me. I'm sorry, that doesn't work for me. Or, how do you want me to do that? That's a very powerful response. Uh -huh, so totally Chris Voss. How do you want me to do that? Like, don't go to the, go, don't go to the police. Yeah, listen, I don't want to, but we're talking about $20,000. How do you want me to not go to the police if you've given up on the possibility of paying me back? What do you suggest? And if they, they I mean, in all likelihood, this catches them off guard because they'll be thinking, well, I suggest nothing. I suggest you leave me alone so I don't have to pay you back the ten, twenty thousand dollars um, $20,000. You know, go, well, doesn't seem reasonable to me. No, I'm sorry. Starting with I'm sorry works quite nicely. I'm sorry. It wouldn't be reasonable for me to do that. So what do you suggest? And keep on throwing it back at them. Uh, the, let me see. I got some notes from Chris Voss. A few things you can do is you can try to label what they're, they're saying or how they're reacting, usually because they like to deny it. So that also throws them off. It's like, it, it seems like you're getting upset. No, I'm not getting upset. Okay, well, it seems that way. Uh, when you're talking with them, use mirrors. Mirrors are great. So they'll say something random, and the mirror is you repeat the last three or five words of their sentence um, just as a question. So would you suggest, well, I can't pay you back the money right now because I've got a lot of other business going on. A lot of other business going on. Yes, but it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. Well, I'm going to get there eventually once, once the business sorts itself out. Once the business sorts itself out, you get the idea. You just take it, phrase it back, and let them continue talking. Knowing when to shut up is really important. It's really, really, really important. This is tricky when we feel like we're adaptive children who have to re-earn the love of the parent who was nurturing and turned critical. When we get caught in this, we tend to think, if the parent went from nurturing to critical, I did something wrong, the problem is me. It's not, not necessarily the case and probably not the case. Usually, going from uh, nurturing to critical is a choice. So if somebody chooses to do it, they just chose to do it. And the multiple reasons. It's a great way of manipulating people. It's a great way of getting what you want. And when you shout at a child and they do what you want, you got your short-term result. The long-term result is that the child is afraid, but the short-term result is that they stopped asking questions. And not all parents uh, know enough about psychology to think of long-term repercussions, unfortunately. So, so, so be it. Um, so, yeah, when, when we're labeling, sorry, let me get my notes back. When we're labeling this, we're using mirrors. It throws back the, the um, pressure of talking onto them. 
which is where we want it to be. We want to get as much information as possible and they're no longer judged so we don't have to justify anything. We have questions, we ask questions, that's fine. We don't have questions, whatever. Get them talking, get the information. Uh, so using mirrors, use labels to identify the emotions they have that can wind them up. If you get them really wound up, so this is where it gets a bit tricky. If you get them really wound up, you might get exposed to the narcissistic rage. Um, but sometimes it's helpful to get that. One bomb you can drop at any point in time is saying, wow, it looks like you don't have this under control. Or it looks like you're really insecure. Or when you do this, it makes you look insecure. Like if they, they raise their voice, you go, you know, when you get upset like this, it just makes you look really insecure. Because they are so focused on maintaining their persona, they're really freaked out at the idea of losing it and seeming insecure, unsure of themselves, contradictory. So just use that. When you do this, it makes you look like this. Focus on when you do this behavior, because that's going to train them. If doing this behavior makes them look insecure, they don't want to do the behavior, so they'll stop it. It's really like training an animal. Um, just much less rewarding, much less fun, much less cute. So, okay, strange. Uh, when you ask questions, try to ask questions that are turned towards no. One of the questions is, you know, have you given up on us finding a solution? If you ask, do you have a solution? Nah, I don't really know. No questions. So when we say no, no protects, and yes is a commitment. For example, if I asked you, would you sign up for my, um, for my workshop on toxic people? You're probably reluctant to say, yes, sure. If I ask you, is it impossible that you sign up for my workshop on toxic people? You'll probably go, no, not impossible. And then we start examining the, uh, the possibilities. This is it's very effective in sales. Sales being, by the way, not making someone do something they don't want to do, but having a conversation to see if it's the right thing. For instance, if my workshop on toxic people was exactly the thing that you needed to get better, to understand what was happening, to get your life back on track, and you don't buy it, then I'm really not doing you a favor. If it's the right thing for you to do, then of course you should buy it. How do we know? And that's going to be up to me when I put out the marketing material to give you all the information that you need to make an informed decision to see if it's the right thing or not the right thing. And if it isn't, don't buy it. And if you do buy it and realize it's not the right thing, I'll give you the money back. Like, why, why, why would I keep the money if it's the wrong thing? So this works in sales, works with toxic people also. Ask questions turned towards no, so they give you a no answer. Is it impossible? Oh, it seems you've decided it's impossible that you pay me the money back. No, I haven't. Well, you say that, but it seems it's impossible that you pay the money back um, before the end of the year. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. You can throw in something else. It seems like you don't have the power. You don't have the money. You don't have what it takes. It seems that you're in a situation that is not under control and you can't make any commitments because you don't have the power. So make it, make it seem like they are powerless, um, like it's a weakness on their side if they don't give you what you want. Okay, they don't like this. It's likely that they that they'll, you know, it won't go down well with them. 
which is what you want. You want you want to create this this cognitive dissonance where they want two different things, and it's going to be easier to give you what you want than to live with the impression that they are the other thing. Um, let me see. So there's that. That when they when they they have a reaction that's really unpleasant, you can say something along the lines of, "When you do this, I feel like this. Is this what you want?" When you talk to me this way, I feel like you don't care about me. Is this what you want? When you talk to me this way, I feel like you've decided that you won't pay me back. Is this what you want? Take control of the conversation. Don't trust them. They're not trustworthy. Don't have, yeah, trust, hope. Don't assume they'll do anything the right way because what makes you believe they would? When have they done that in the past? Have they done it in the past? Then, um, yeah. The last thing may be here, uh, dynamic silence. You don't have to talk. You make a statement, just let it go. You know, when you, when you don't give me a clear answer, it seems that you are just, it seems that you, you're powerless and you're afraid to admit it. Don't add anything. Don't justify anything. Just make your statement or ask a question. Let it go and let them talk. You don't need to fill in the blanks. You don't need to justify anything. As long as we feel the need to justify things, to fill in the blanks, to be validated, to get approval, as long as we're doing that, we haven't solved the core issue, which leaves us vulnerable to the next one. Uh, so that's a good indicator. When it comes to... Um, when it comes to, let's say, payment plans, for example, yes, I'll, gi I'll give you the 10,000 back. You know, it's just going to take two months. Then you can go, you know, okay, that sounds great. Do you have, are there any reasons why you would not be able to pay me back? And if these reasons occur, what will you do? How can I know? that you're not just saying this. To me, it sounds like you're just saying it. Like how it seems like you don't have the money, that you're just trying to buy time. So I'm really sorry until I'm thoroughly convinced. I'll just consider that you're, uh, that you're powerless and you're not admitting it. So I'm afraid the only reasonable thing for me to do is to go to the police. And here, this is where you discharge your responsibility where you're going your behavior and your lack of being convincing means that I don't have the choice and I have to do this in this case you're you're removing your agency so this is a small manipulation technique normally they remove their agency and you're putting all of the burden on the situation onto them whatever they do or what they choose to do will determine how you act you've got no agency these are the rules these are the rules you either convince me, you convince me that, that you're trustworthy, and then you look for all of the reasons why it wouldn't work, and you need to be convinced. If anything is not convincing to you, go, I'm sorry. It just doesn't seem reasonable to me. You know what? I think I just better go to the police. I think it's, it's going to avoid wasting, wasting our time. If it's a matter of money, there tends to be some kind of asset they can give you. Um, you can even ask for it. You can go, you know, I know you say that it's this, but I don't, 
Like, if this were the case, why wouldn't you give me the car or the house or write down whatever it might be? Why wouldn't you do that? And then let them come back with an answer. You want to be in a position where you're the one calling calling the shots. Um, if they're not giving you what you want, to say, well, then you don't leave me the choice. I have to do this thing that you don't want me to do. So you're reversing entirely the, the dynamic. Instead of being the child trying to react to the parent and please the parent, you're doing it the other way. You're becoming the parent. You don't have to be unpleasant about it. You're basically telling the child, you know, if you do this, this is what happens. And don't let yourself get knocked down to being the child. You don't have to justify anything to these people anymore. It's, uh, they, they should have no power over you. It's up to them to justify things to you, uh, reassure you so that you don't do the things that they are afraid you're going to do that will create, uh, create a nuisance for them. Um, yeah, let me see in short. I think, I think that pretty much, pretty much covers it. Uh, the quite a few tools there. How do you want me to do this is a really powerful one. What do you suggest? Throw it back at them. If you don't suggest something convincing to me, this is what's going to happen. I don't want that to happen. So you suggest something convincing. When they come with something, you can go, well, I don't find that convincing because ABC. So how do you want me to do this? And keep throwing it back to them. Um, that's up to, up to them to convince you. And you can play devil's advocate. You know, how do we know this? How do we know that? How can, how can I trust you? How can I know this will be the case? And then because you have some capacity to create a nuisance, to go, you know what? Forget about it. I, I don't believe you're being honest and genuine. I'll just go and do this thing. Everything I've said here, incidentally, these are like cards to keep up your sleeve. You will figure out when to pull them out. You will figure out when to use them. You will figure out when's appropriate and when is inappropriate. I don't know because I don't know the, the, the specifics of the situation. Uh, so you'll know, you'll do your best, you'll adapt. It will, it will create a different dynamic. They probably won't like it, but you know, you also have to assess what is their capacity to create a stink and create a nuisance. Usually it's smaller than we think and limited. Uh, but you want to, you want to be, you want to be aware of that. Um, I think if there's anything else that could be helpful. Yeah, let me let me give you a story of um, a lawyer who was not negotiating with a toxic person, but with a company. And his client had had some kind of real estate damage. The real estate agency or the insurance agency was reluctant to do something. And so they were getting into a long fight and he used this Chris Voss technique of calling up the guy and saying, I'm representing this, this gentleman. Uh, I'd like to know, have you decided it's impossible that we come to a amicable arrangement that is fair for you and fair for my client? Oh, that's another one. Fair. Fair. Keep on telling them, I want something that's fair for you and fair for me. Do you agree on this? And it's difficult for anyone to say, I don't want something that's fair for me, but if it's fair for me, it has to be fair for you. Fair is the F-bomb. So they can come up with whatever they want, and you go, listen, I can see why that's to your advantage. How is that fair for me? It doesn't seem fair to me. 
and uh, and then just say, you know, have you decided it's impossible that we find an arrangement that is fair for both of us? One of the nice things here is that who is the judge of what is fair for you? You are. You're the judge. Are you right? The universe will tell. Who knows? Who knows? If if someone owes you ten thousand dollars, is it fair that they pay you back ten thousand dollars, or is it fair that they pay you back eleven thousand dollars because of the interest, or twelve thousand, or twenty thousand, or eight thousand? I don't know. Whatever's fair for you is what is fair for you. Are you right? Are you wrong? If you decide that ten thousand dollars has become a hundred thousand dollars because you're really upset, you know probably the court is going to decide. And if you decide that eight thousand is fair because whatever, better 8,000 than 10,000, as long as it's fair for you. And who knows in the absolute? Who knows? No one's a judge. No one is. And if there is a judge, they're just doing their best. It's just a third person's point of view. So that's, that's, that's sort of irrelevant. Uh, yeah, the, the F-bomb. And you can keep doing the thing of saying, suggest something that's fair for me, or else this is what happens. I don't want it to happen. Oh, and um, yeah. Another very important one. This is part of the Aikido trick that you use with them. The two tricks. One Aikido trick is the, um, is the, when you do this, it makes you seem insecure. Or, yeah, but insecure, lack self-confidence. The insecure one is good. The other Aikido trick, so Aikido, in case you don't know it, it's a martial art where you don't punch the other person, you don't kick them. You use their strength when they try to hit you or punch you to throw them over. So you wait for them to be aggressive and then you flip them around and they don't know what happened to them. So like one of the Aikido masters said, the stronger my opponent is, the bigger the chances I have of defeating him or her. The other Aikido trick is saying when they do something, saying, I respect your choice and I regret your choice. Leave it at that. I respect your choice, I regret your choice. You've decided to not make me an offer that seems fair to me. Okay. I regret your choice and I respect your choice. Therefore, I will go to the police. You're not going to argue with them. They made their choice. You respect it. You don't like it. You regret it, but you respect it. That's your choice. You don't need to argue the choices. If the person, uh, I don't know, cheats on you or anything else. Okay. I respect your choice. I regret it. I'm not happy about it, but I respect it. I'm not going to try to, to argue or win anything back. Things are the way they are. And they are this way because you made the choice to make them this way. And I regret that. I really do. But I respect your choice. This is really important if you are in still, for whatever reason, in a relationship with someone like this. The only way to have a healthier relationship is for both people to be willing to walk away. And if someone acts in a bad way in a relationship, I regret your choice of acting this way. I respect it, and my choice is to not be in a relationship with someone who doesn't respect me. So I regret the fact that you chose not to respect me. I respect that choice, and therefore I'm walking away. And if you want me to stay, okay, how can you guarantee this won't happen again in the future? Because I'm not going to come back if it happens again. So you have to be really convincing. When someone goes, give me a second chance, it's like, I'm not closed to that possibility 
how can you guarantee this this won't happen again in the future if you can't guarantee that it won't happen again in the future why would i give you a second chance like why would i do that to myself you've just demonstrated that something that for me was unthinkable happened so probably it's going to happen again i why would i give you a second chance you're saying it's a mistake that's not convincing at all saying it's a mistake is you probably enjoyed it like why, why is this a mistake because i'm upset you know but so so the issue is that i'm upset at a behavior that you have that works for you and doesn't work for me so ultimately why is that why is that an issue right so i could get into all of this it's much longer uh this has been longer than i expected anyway i hope this has been helpful for you if you have questions um you can shoot me messages uh on you know instagram twitter um well, i just got a loud ping instagram twitter email i can do i can do lives and i will at one point be uploading my 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 workshop that should be helpful and be preparing some clips that should be helpful also so thank you very much for watching and take care of yourself and do do not hesitate to shoot me questions if you have any uh any comments you want to share anything with other people that was helpful just uh, just go ahead okay take good care of yourself bye